This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast Policy on Purpose. And today I have a very, very special guest, Jim Steinberg. And Jim is special in a lot of different ways. Uh, One, he's special because he was part of the LBJ school and did so much at the school while he was here. Very innovative, even though he only had one term here. Um, Did a lot of innovative things at the school that we're still benefiting from. Another way that it's so uh, special for me is he's the one that actually brought me to the LBJ school. And the third, and the reason we really want to talk to Jim today, is he has an amazing career for a relatively young man. Uh, So I can say that because he is my junior by many years. But, um, you know, Jim has had so much success in the public sector. Uh, You know, he served as the deputy secretary of state under uh, Mr. Obama's administration under Mrs. Clinton. Uh, And now he is at the um, Maxwell School. He served as dean at the Maxwell School. And after his deanships, he's now serving as the professor of Social Science, International Affairs, and Law at the Maxwell School, which is the number one rated public administration school. And he has a lot of experience in think tanks. So when you think about think tanks, public sector, and big positions in the federal government, that's like a combination of experience that gives you different insights that I really want to probe a little bit today. So welcome, Well, thank you. It's great. It's wonderful to be back here. I can't tell you how happy it is it makes me to be back and see the LBJ School doing so well and and be fortunate enough to have you at a TED. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, So, Jim, I want to really do two things today. One is I really want to talk to you about the role we play in serving in academic institutions that play a role in preparing the next generation of our policy folks. That's one. And then the other, I want to talk to you about some of the the challenges we face in that role and preparing our students for relationship with China, which has caused a lot of questions and issues and um, consternation and uncertainty. Uh, so let's start with the first one. Right. You know, when, you, when we're thinking about the kinds of students who come uh, to our schools, these are students who have a purpose. They want to do a public good. They want to step into the public uh, realm. What is it that you're seeing over the last years that you've been in uh, academia that you think we need to be talking and working with our students to prepare them differently than we prepared them maybe 15 or 20 years ago? It's it's a great question. And, you know, I do think it's an enormously important challenge for all of us to think about how do we prepare people to make a difference. Because there are a lot of things that have changed about our students over the years that I've been teaching. But one thing that hasn't changed is their motivation to make a difference. That's been a constant. And it's, I think, what keeps us all going is to see this this very strong, very idealistic sense of the the importance of and the ability to make a difference. But I think the, the challenge has become more difficult in recent years for a variety of reasons. I think the, the first and perhaps most important is just the multiplicity of actors who are in broadly in the public space. I mean, it was possible to think 40 or 50 years ago when the LBJ school was founded and a lot of the other schools of public affairs were, were founded that most of the action was in government, right? And mostly at the national government level, so a little bit on the international level, but largely national governments were, you know, where things were happening. And then obviously, to the extent that it was involved in issues, domestic issues, it could be state and local governments as well. But today we see that there are a lot more different actors. There are 
far more civil society is much more active, NGOs are much more active, the private sector is much more active. And not only are there more actors involved, but there are the kinds of solutions that we need to deal with contemporary problems means bringing all these actors to the table. So it, it requires a much more uh, diverse portfolio of skills and understanding for students to be able to navigate that, not to mention the fact that careers have changed. I mean, that nobody holds a, a lifetime job. Uh, when I went into government, I've come in and out, but there were many people who had a lifetime career in the foreign service, a lifetime career in the civil service. It's much rarer today and will become even rarer over time. So you have, uh, on the one hand, the universe of actors and solutions, uh, much more diverse and multifaceted, and the likely career trajectories for our students, also more diverse. And, and we have to prepare them not to answer today's questions, right, but to answer the questions they're going to deal with 20 years from now. So it requires uh, the ability to to have this kind of multidisciplinary, multidimensional uh, approach and get students to think about what are the skills and perspectives that will serve them across all of these different worlds and universes? What are the kind of the foundational things that they need to know that will serve them, whether they're in the private sector, civil society, uh, a, a local government, a national government, an international organization, and what will be the things that will be still relevant 20 or 30 years now when technology has changed, the world's problems have changed? Mm -hmm. This is a very tall order um, because we sit uh, – the benefits we have is we sit in the middle of some wonderful universities. Most of their policy schools are part of larger institutions, which we can draw on those disciplines. Yet those disciplines have two big problems that I see. One is they're very specific, and they tend to be more narrow. And the second thing, universities often don't have the administrative structure or the understanding of how to bring all of these together. So that adds another dimension of difficulty for a policy school that says we have to bring these these various disciplines together to try to look at getting at and understanding problems, understanding data um, and how those problems are defined, and then being creative with uh, solutions that are feasible uh, and feasible across many audiences. So one of the things we've been doing here at the LBJ School is really starting to think about what are those skills that are long-term skills or basic skills that students can grow those skills over time, and then how do we help students grow coalitions, which is a very different kind of an educational approach than, like you say, even 20 years ago, where, you know, you do a stat class and then you, I'm, I'm simplifying this, but you do a stat class, a research methodology class, and then you take, you know, like a survey class in global issues. Yep. So I, I think the institutional questions are tough. Um, I uh, I love all my children and all the schools that I've been at. But one of the advantages that I've had at the Maxwell School and Dean is Maxwell School is Maxwell is the only public policy school in the country that has all the social sciences within the Maxwell School. So I was not just dean of, of public affairs and public right. administration and international affairs, but I was also dean of political science and economics. Uh, of sociology, uh, of uh, anthropology, uh, geography, and importantly, history. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we had a certain advantage in being able to bring these disciplines to the table. We still had certain degrees of silos, but I think it was a real uh, insight that, that allowed uh, bridging both across disciplines and across the world of more academic and theoretical work to the world of practice. And I think that that's something that even for places like the LBJ School, where the, the architecture of the university is different, building these ties to the, the, the disciplines is really important to try to think about how do you expose uh, students to these different ways of thinking about problems. Because each of the disciplines brings a different 
set of perspectives that are useful for the practitioner, right? That a practitioner doesn't just need political science tools, doesn't just need economic tools, doesn't just need sociology tools or anthropology tools, needs to be able to draw on all of those things. So the first thing I think is for policy students in particular to get some sense about how do these different disciplines, what do they bring to the table? And to incorporate that into our curriculum for policy school uh, students. I think the next thing is to get this blend of knowledge plus practice and feasibility, right? And, I, and I've worked very hard on this as a teacher to try to think about what is the balance between how much theoretical knowledge uh, do you want and how much do you want to be apply it. Um, I've always believed that one of the most neglected tools that we don't study either as academic researchers or teachers is what I call the problem of the second best. The, the nature of the academy is looking for the optimal solution, um, and most disciplines are looking for the optimal solution. But that means that the initial conditions are very constrained. It's a laboratory kind of right, environment. Right. Practitioners don't have that luxury. The knowledge is imperfect. As you mentioned, you have to build coalitions. There are diverse interests. And so building a set of approaches that recognize that we're, we're satisficing in many cases rather than optimizing is a really important skill to try to teach. And how do you both build coalitions? How do you have a clear sense of your objectives, but recognize that you're not going to fulfill all of them at once. Uh, how do you find ways of accommodating different viewpoints? How do you deal with the imperfections of the real world? Uh, it's a set of skills that I think we need to put more attention to in our curriculum and to really build them into the way we teach. Yeah, I think you're mentioning the word skills. You know, so some people think this is a bad term, like, oh, skills, you know, we're making them apprenticeships and, you know, we're sacrificing the theoretical big thinking. But if you think about theoretical work, it's really setting frameworks. You know, thinkers are thinking about how do we think about these things in large frames? Then after we get those frameworks, then we can think about how they really play out. So experiential learning is absolutely critical. And it's been in the LBJ school's DNA because it was in the beginning, it was the practitioner as well as the, theor uh, the theoretician. Uh, and we're seeing that more and more. And people are looking at public policy schools to be that bridge of the discoveries and knowledge that took place in the university and taking it outside. And also the other way, bringing things that people on the outside need who are really solving problems now, not in 20 years from now, and bringing that into the university. So you try to understand your research and how you design your research has some application absolutely. to what's and going on now. Absolutely. And I'll give a plug here for one of my funders, the Carnegie Corporation, which for many years has been involved in what they call the Bridging the Gap program, which is to recognize that, one, there is a gap between the world of the academy and the world of practice, but two, that both worlds would benefit from closer ties. And I've been working uh, very closely with another uh, alumnus of the LBJ school, Frank Gavin, who's now um, at uh, Johns Hopkins Sice, in a project that's trying to think about how do we get the best of both worlds? How do we make our teaching towards our students who are going into practice more rigorous yes. so that it isn't just a bunch of war stories and, and yes. kind of, mm -hmm. you know, off the top of your head judgments so that the, but it is also related to the constraints of real world practice. And I think there is tremendous opportunity there that you, if you have a good grounding in strong methods and strong theory, that will inform your ability to be a good practitioner, but it can't be the only thing you have because it, you know, it's the great saying that was always attributed to a, um, a French diplomat who once was reported to have said, "Yes, I know it works in practice, but can it work in theory?" Yes. <laughs> uh, and let's flip that, right? Yes. yes and yes, so we yes. need both, 
And I think that the policy schools in particular are uniquely placed to do that because of their ability to tap into and, and the fact that most of the faculty, um, even in our public policy schools, often come from disciplines, right? Yeah. So they have that grounding. They have that knowledge about what's going on in the more academic, the more theoretical um, the world, but also are connected to the applied world, both in their teaching and the research. And I think both are important. I mean, we need faculty who not only teach to this end, but also have their research focused on, you know, taking the kind of rigor that comes from academic work, but applying it towards real-world problems. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough, too. Um, we got a several grants from the National Science Foundation as well to try to think about how you take knowledge uh, and the strength of the disciplines in university and put it through a lens of policy or public administration and put it out there. It's not, it's not easy. Um, and I think uh, the community in general is struggling with this, but understand it. So at least that's a good step is that people understand this is something we need to do. And there's probably lots of different ways to do. There's not like a way or the way. There's a bunch of ways. So those are things we have to keep thinking about as policy educators and keeping our eye on the ball and also being active like you are, you know, having a, having professors who are active in the community, stay active in the community so they can bring that knowledge back into the schools. So this gets me into another thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I think one of the difficult things, there's two things, really. One is when you think about global, because you started the global you know, degree program here, I often think about global as very, it's different than international, like you know, where you're thinking like bilateral, unilateral, or diplomacy. Global is when you think about a problem, and that problem has definite implications for the United States, but for us to handle that problem, we have to play with other people around the world on this problem. And teaching students the what you're saying in the beginning here about, you know, multidisciplines, it even makes it even more difficult because now you're looking at global players that might change given, you know, what the situation is and working with them so that we can benefit them, but also benefit the United States. And I think we're, the jury's still out on how well we're doing with that. Do you agree? I do. I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we started the Global Studies Program here because of the conviction that all of the problems had linkages to the environment beyond the United States or beyond any single country. And and we picked global because it wasn't just a matter between nations, but it was all kinds of networks and connections that were taking place. When I, I taught the, the basic course here when we first started the degree, and, and the first assignment was come up with a, a policy problem which does not have a connection outside the borders of the United States. And of course, there is no such thing. There's just, there's simply, even the things that we think of as very local, like education mm -hmm. or sewers or mm -hmm. things like that, all have an international dimension and a global dimension. And so understanding those linkages and understanding that that boundary is a totally artificial one, that boundaries, we hear a lot about walls these days, but boundaries really are highly permeable and, and we are affected in ways that people don't even think hard enough about. But then the question is, how do you teach to that? Because yes. the complexity can somehow make it all seem like almost unmanageable. Because on the one hand, you have to appreciate the complexity. On the other hand, you have to tease out the strands because you can't deal with everything yeah, simultaneously. So, overwhelming right? people, it's, yes. so it's like, you know, for the mathematically inclined, I always used to say, it's like partial differential equations. You can't solve all of it, but you have to break it up into these partial elements, but not lose sight of the fact that it's embedded in a, in a broader context. That means exposing students to uh, these complex systems, these these connections, and exposing them to the fact that, that perceptions of these problems differ from country to country, that there are some similarities uh, and places where we see problems are 
very similar, and some places where we see different approaches and different views. I think this is still our challenge, and, and getting professors who can do that. Because, you know, as you say, we, we're a public policy school. It's great, but we draw on these disciplines. And, and to be successful in your discipline, sometimes you have to do deep dives. You don't think more globally. You think more about your specific, you know, approach to things. So, But, you know, I say one of the great strengths here, which and I think it had a lot of influence on my own thinking, was because— of the strong connection that, that UT and, and the LBJ School has always had to our neighbor to the south. Yes. And and that kind of transboundary, interdomestic dimension with so many people like Peter Ward and others, you know, would work mm-hmm. on, um, you know, really brought home to me, one, the fact that for especially for, for border states and border yes. communities like here, you see it all the time on everything, on water, on air, on people, on health. And second, sort of the the ability to think about how do you build institutions and programs that address this. And the strong connection that, that UT has to Latin America and that the LBJ School has had to Latin America, I think, is a model of how to think about and work these problems. Mm-hmm. I don't like usually to use the word exploit, but that's a good word here because we can drive to the border. And we have so many alum and uh, presence in Mexico and Latin America, and that's one of the strategic directions we're taking. And there's so many things to think about in terms of trade and civil systems, et cetera. So, and Latin America is not all one thing right, either, right? Sure. So, um, sure. But the one area where I'm really interested in getting your perspective is when we start talking about China. Because here you have a massive economy, a massive country, and sometimes there's sort of this love-hate relationship or this sympathetic versus not-so-sympathetic approach to China. And you have a communist system, but it's becoming economically more and more strong. And so when we're trying to think about this in terms of helping our students understand this major player in the globe— how do we do this so we're balanced so that, you know, like when you're thinking in the State Department, how do you approach a potential adversary, but at the same time, you really want to make sure the connections are there so that you understand what they're doing? Well, it's a great question, you know, and it's it, for me, it's a very poignant one because when I was a student and beginning to think about international relations, of course, the big challenge was the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So my language of choice back in the day, was Russian, and I studied Russian. And one of the things I remember is my first teacher uh, was a very good teacher, uh, but who'd learned his Russian in the Army and had never spent any time in the Soviet Union because, of course, you couldn't Couldn't go, go, right? Right, right. And a few Americans studied there, Mm -hmm. but you'd end up in Moscow State and you were very cabined in. And we have an advantage in dealing with China, at least now, although we maybe we're turning in a different direction, which is there's still a tremendous amount of interchange. Uh, We have just a gigantic influx of, of Chinese students and more and more of our students who are now studying in China. So that's the first opportunity that we have is is to really, whatever the political issues between us, we can't cut off these avenues of exchange and and getting to learn them. We may not agree with China. Maybe we will end up in a competition, a rivalry, or or worse. But we need to understand them. And and this is a very big problem because a lot of what's going on really, I think, reflects a a deep failure to understand China. Uh, I think we understand a lot about Xi Jinping and the Politburo Standing Committee, but we don't understand that as much as we should about China. So people need to go. They need to study. They need to see. They need to get to know Chinese. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is an advantage, by the way, that we have so many Chinese students in our schools. They're not 
you know, a statistically representative sample of the Chinese people. Right. But they are diverse, and there are a lot of them. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of them in my classes, and it's, it's really great because whatever the problems of freedom of expression in China, and I know there's a lot of fear about intimidation of Chinese students here or that they're a fifth column. I'm not seeing that. Mm -hmm. I'm really not seeing that in my classroom. My Chinese students are knowledgeable. They have, they're, they're, they have pride in their country. They're patriotic about their country, but they, they understand the issues and challenges. And, and so that's the first thing is we, we really do have to get to know each other. We don't have to agree with each other, but we right. do have to get to know each other on the student-student and on faculty-to-faculty exchanges. We need to keep going. We, we can't sacrifice our commitment to academic freedom when we go. We can't refuse to talk about topics that we want to talk about. I've been very fortunate. I go and teach in China a lot, um, and nobody's ever told me what I can or can't say. Um, and I say what I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I was just there last week, and I had some strong words to say about my concerns about what was going on in the Chinese leadership. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to keep those avenues open of understanding. And I think that if we do that, one, it gives us a better chance of managing the problems. But two, at least if we have difficulties, they will be real <laughs> rather yes. than imagined. And, I, and one of the great dangers that we, uh, that we face is a danger because of our lack of knowledge on the other side. We tend to fear the worst uh, and prepare for the worst. And that's understandable if you don't really know what's going on. How else can you behave? Uh, but if we have a better understanding, I think that will help. And so we need to, it's it's a difficult time. Uh, both sides are pressuring the freedom of exchange. Um, there's a lot coming out of the administration that worries me a great deal about the sort of notion that that we can't. I mean, we've heard the president talk loosely about cutting off all students coming from China, which I think would be a terrible tragedy. Mm -hmm. Well, this gets back to the thing, too. We get back to global, you know, and if we become more and more isolationist, and I don't like to use the term because it's got a lot of baggage, but if we become more and more withdrawn and more and more making um, countries the other, uh, then this understanding, this cultural understanding, this understanding of how people work, what they're thinking, what they're researching, because the other part with the China uh, situation is, in addition to the, you know, the university's think tanks, and, you know, people think, well, they're tied to the government, so we really can't work with them. But if we don't open ourselves up, uh, and we don't have confidence that the people here uh, uh, can do a good job there and understand, then we're going to close off a major uh, potential partner, player, or even influencing what goes on in China. It's been a challenge. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, I mean, I don't think we need to be naive about this. I mean, yeah. when academics come from China to here, there are constraints. Yes. They are not as free to do yes. Yes. and to engage in inquiry as we are uh, here. And so, but... The alternative just is to say, well, because they have these constraints and they, they can't fully speak freely that we shouldn't engage with them, I think it's a terrible mistake. We have to just un we have to understand the limits of what's possible here. It's different from having an exchange with our friends in Mexico or the UK or whatever, mm -hmm. but we still need to have that. And, you know, there's still an opportunity uh, to, to hear and learn from each other. And I think we need to have confidence in ourselves that we're not threatened by this, I mean, I know we hear a lot about these Chinese influence campaigns, but to me, honestly, the notion that the, the China Daily taking out an ad in our newspaper is somehow going to threaten our, or that we can't tell the difference, I just don't find persuasive. I think, though, it goes back to our earlier discussion about globalism, which is that you do hear in some of the critiques, and I don't want to make this sound too political, when the president attacks globalism, right, and sort of this idea that somehow that's a bad thing, it's, it's not a good or bad thing. It's just a reality, right? Mm -hmm. We are, in
interdependent. Uh, we can't cut ourselves off from these things. And while there are certainly some zero-sum features, um, even in the world of economics, which we think of as the world of vicious competition, we all know that, that while there have been costs to globalization and independence, there have also been enormous benefits. And so um, understanding that and understanding globalization as a phenomenon which we need to both understand the risks and dangers but also the opportunities is really critical. And that interdependence, which was why I did that exercise in my first class, is basically to realize we can't insulate ourselves. There is no wall high enough um, that will allow us to sort of live within ourselves. Um, it was never true of this country, by the way. I mean, it's, they, we have this sort of image, but as a student of American history, you know, we, we were a country that was founded on commerce, mm -hmm. right? We have never been able to uh, extricate ourselves from the affairs of the world, and even less so today. One of the things I wanted to get your opinion on as well is I see the policy schools also playing a role in the university of bringing big thinkers into the university around not that they have to be a big thinker in physics or astrophysics or, you know, genome project, but people who think big about things and think about the future. You know, you know, as we're moving down this this road, if I can use a metaphor, and we have to, we know that we're gonna have an exit lane, you know, to the, the future. And we have to make sure we're ready to get into that exit lane. What role do you see the policy schools playing in bringing some of these large thinkers in, and not with the objective that they're going to be a visiting fellow and be here and do a class, but work for the university in terms of bringing larger kinds of concepts see, to I the university? The, I think the, the, the perspective that policy schools bring that really is a comparative advantage here is that policy schools think about problems rather than tools. And that's a different way of organizing inquiry, right, um, which is rather than saying, you know, what can we learn about, you know, particle physics or what can we learn? What can, the question is, what can we learn about low-carbon energy? And so the, the policy schools can help redefine the agenda of the universities around problems rather than disciplines or methods and then use the disciplines and methods to help address the problems. So by becoming the place that helps the university identify what are the big questions yes. that that society is grappling with, whether it's AI or whether it's the environment, and then think about who are the people, irrespective of what discipline they come from, that are thinking creatively and innovatively about it. So I think the advantage is less so much in the, the who uh, as to the what we should be talking about and helping to think about that. And some of the innovative universities are more and more organizing themselves around big problems rather than sort of traditional departments. And I think the policy schools can really help lead the way in helping the universities think that way about the inquiry that takes place on campus. One, mm -hmm. um, I was at a conference and, you know, you get into a session sometimes and people get you to think about things. And, and this thought came to me. When you think about um, public institutions, there's only really two public institutions that protect the differences of, a, of ideas that can sit side by side. So when you say um, you go to a public library, you can go and you can look at all of the publications, and there's not a judgment of this person's higher than this. They're all on the same shelf, so to speak. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like idea kind of by idea. Uh, the same thing that a public university should be as well, and you know, bringing ideas that are different, and like you said, not to fear the fact that somebody's going to say something that they were gonna, then it's all of a sudden all of our knowledge and is going to go out the window because we're going to get like, swept up by this um, is a public university, yet we're finding that there's a little bit more of timidity in this uh, idea of bringing lots of different um, ideas to a university campus. So 
what do you see as the danger of that? Or what do you see? Maybe maybe that's a loaded question. Maybe uh, give me your give me your idea about the role of a public university in bringing different ideas together. It's a big challenge, and we've seen this in a lot of universities uh, around the campus for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm very close to a number of the people at the Miller Center at the University yes. of Virginia, which has gone through this great controversy about this in which the question about whether voices from the Trump administration belong, not so much to speak on campus. I don't think they're, it's really indisputable that people should come and speak, but whether they belong as members of the yes. academic community. Yeah. And it's a tough question, you know, because these there are a lot of things clear that I strongly disagree with. Um, but I think we can't uh, afford to run away from them. We have to find a way to engage with them in ways that are respectful. I mean, I think that's really the key is to is to keep the, the door as wide open as we can, but have rules about civility about the way that it's conducted. And that, that issue of civility, which is a, a great national preoccupation right now, deserves to be up in front because the ability to have this discordance and be open to different ideas does depend on civility. I would just say, as again, as a historian, um, let's not kid ourselves. Incivility has characterized our politics from the beginning, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, anybody who studied the Civil War and remembers the caning of Charles Sumner on the floor of the Congress, and that was in the middle of, of our, our first hundred years, but even going back um, to the earliest days um, and the vitriol and the, and the name-calling and the, the real sort of deep animus. So it's not a new phenomenon here, the problem of, of sustaining civility in, in our public life. Uh, and it is, it is hard when people advocate views which are quite you know, disturbing. But we have to find ways to be civil and we have to find ways to have it be based on the, the canons of, of uh, inquiry that we all believe in, yes. which is it has to be evidence-based, it has to be you know, based on reasoning and logic and not just a, a debating thing. The universities are not op-ed pages of newspapers, right? Anything could be published in an op-ed newspaper. There is a requirement here that it's more than just opinion. For the academic community, who's going to be members of this community, it has to be people who are committed to the basic principles of reasoning, of inquiry, of evidence-based uh, analysis. But within that, we just have to make sure that we keep the doors as wide as we can. That's what I see our role is as a university. That's what I see our role is in public policy schools. And I see our role as exposing students to that. So they're practiced and they, they start building their muscle of you know discretion and understanding here. Uh, where it's a safe environment to make mistakes, but we have to be able to expose students to things that are difficult, to things that are confusing, the things that they may not always agree with or are uncomfortable with. And if we don't do that, I think we really do fail. Right. And you uh, talked earlier about the importance of building coalitions and things yes. like that. I mean, what I always tell my students is that you are never going to find yourself once you leave the campus, if you are, if even if you were in the campus environment in a like-minded group. They're, you're going to be constantly dealing with people who have different views, different analysis, and you're going to have to find a way to work through that. I mean, everything can't be a, you know, a fistfight. You're going to have to find ways to work with people who have different perspectives, who have different set of interests, a different set of priorities. And if you don't learn how to do that when you're a student, when, when are you going to learn? Right. To and you need to seek them out. So even if they don't come across your path, you need to seek them out because that's the best kind of policies, understanding the consequences and the implications for lots of different audiences. So doing that as well. Well, Jim, it has been such a pleasure. This is a very wonderful there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying, and I do hope 
um, that we're able to work together to succeed in this. It's a big deal. It's very important, but I, I think that you know the missions of these schools are very important. I mean, because they are fundamentally about civic engagement, and you know, and that's what makes our students so special, and and that's why we're, we we enjoy so much engagement because they have this sense of civic responsibility, and and um, you know, we we at the Maxwell School all repeat the Athenian oath yes. uh, when we graduate our students about making our city more beautiful than we found it, and so. That spirit is what brings, I think, all of us as teachers to these schools, what brings our students to these schools. And I think we just have to keep true to that mission and, and, and adapt it to the world that we live in today. Thank you. And I hope everyone is listening, you know, that we're very, very fortunate in this country to have people like Jim and other educators who are devoted to students and devoted to ensuring that our students get the best education, the best exposure, the best skill sets that they can so that, like Jim said at the very beginning, not just for when they leave our school immediately, but for their long-term career trajectories, wherever that may take them. Thank you Great. again so Terrific. much, Jim. Great to be here. Same Thank here. You. Thank you. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.